Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Being Christian, some people will think it's just vote Republican. Right? If you're in the UK, as long as you are baptized in the Anglican Church, it's actually synonymous with being a British person. Now, some people, some unbelievers, and I think actually, unfortunately, some Christians would say, well, to be Christian is not to smoke, not to drink, and not to womanize. And if you're like my son, who is four years old now, some people would say it's being born to Christian parents and then going to church. And after maybe, finally, not a few of us would say that being a Christian is associated with the fact that you walked down an aisle sometime, some, some time ago, and actually said a particular prayer. Now, some things I've actually said are somehow tied to Christian faith. I'm not actually dismissing all of them. But at the same time, it's possible to have an inadequate view of what it is. Being a Christian is first and foremost a status. Now, what do I mean by a status? A status is something that isn't so much done in you. It's something that is actually done over you. In a very forensic kind of way, let me give you an example. 15 years ago, some of us remember that this date, 15 years ago, is actually quite crucial. Most of us know where we were. At least I know where I was when the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center fell. I was at Unilife, Square Medical, Medical, Medical Center, Sportsground. Many of us actually remember that. Now, we eventually found out on the day of itself, we didn't know who was actually the cause of it. This is almost the birth of global terrorism. But eventually, a name came up that became synonymous with the birth of the 21st century, Osama bin Laden. And immediately after that act, Osama bin Laden had a status put upon him by the United States. What was it? America's most wanted. Now notice, nothing happened in Osama, but something happened that was placed upon him. It was a status. Now the Bible also, when it comes to our response to the gospel, speaks a lot about such a status that we have received. Well, it talks, or whether it's in um, uh, Christian circles, or whether even just the common language that we have in our culture. So that's why I'm going to look at this message, this gospel status message, in three parts, all right? The first would be the reward of faith, the second is the nature of faith, and then the third is the object of faith, all right? The reward, the nature, and the object. Now, if you're here, and if you're like me, we're all looking for affirmation in one way or form. You know, one of these big words, justification, there's another one, redemption, and if you're using the ESD, where it says sacrifice of atonement in verse 24, is actually propitiation. Now, one of our big shun words is this justification. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let's, let's, let's remove the whole Christianity around. What would justification really mean? Essentially, it's basically a performance record that obtains a desired result, or desired status. A performance record that obtains for you a desired status. So it would be like, I don't think they do much of it now, but during our time, and most of this time here, if you're in primary school or if you're in secondary school, you serve for an exam or, or a series of exams, and at the end of the day, what happened? They were graded, and then you either became first, 
second, third. I know all of you here who are parents, you told your children that you came first. Don't worry, you are forgiven. That particular sin is not, it's not going to be counted against you. But we were given a status. We performed on a particular exam and therefore were given a status. If you got five credits in your SSE, your NECO, or WASC, or whatever, you had a status that then said you were able to enter the university. For some of us, it will be that I am trying to work so hard so that I can make this amount of money so that I can actually get a status as someone who is reputable in society. Some other people, they'll say, why, why do you have to work hard and do all that? Just do your best to marry very well, and also you can get that status, right? Now, you may laugh at that, but actually it's true. If you, if you, if you look at people who are married very well, they plan their lives. They know where they're going. They know who they want to see. They know how they dress. It's a lot of work. Either way, it's a performance record. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me drive this home a little bit. Now, yesterday was for those of the faithful, um, the Manchester Derby, right? Manchester Derby, Manchester City played Manchester United. For all of you who are supporting Manchester United, it feels good, doesn't it? You played well. Right? You well. You played well. Oh, I'm going to use that after. All right, thank you for that. Now, what happened, right? A team that was playing at home lost. And I happen to live in Manchester, and I'm not so much a football supporter, I just know that I hate my United. Okay, so yesterday was very nice. Apologies if you support Man United, you can get out of this job now. All right, so, but let me say a bit about Manchester United. Now they have a very, very good manager, right? That we hope, or some people hope. But before that, we had two managers that didn't do very well. But everyone that speaks about Manchester United, when you speak about a manager, what name comes up? So Alex Ferguson, all right? Now, prior to Ferguson, the biggest name that was there was another Scotsman who was actually influential in bringing Ferguson. He died in 94. But he was actually influential in bringing Ferguson. Anybody knows his name? Matt Busby. All right, so I'll tell you, Matt Busby. Let me tell you a bit about Matt Busby. Matt Busby actually um, started took over in the United towards the late 40s. By 1948, he won an FA Cup. In 1952, he'd actually won the league. And he did this with a system where he felt youth was actually going to pay. So he developed a youth system that brought in people that actually started, you know, local boys that actually started playing and they were winning the league. In the 55-56 season, where the, the ninth European Cup, what was called the Champions League today, was inaugurated, Real Madrid won that. That same season, McBosby won the league with a group of boys, the average age, 22. And so these guys were taking all comers, and they were destined for glory. In 1958, they were playing the European Cup, and they were going to play in Munich. And on that fateful day, the, there was, um, the, it was icy and it wasn't the best time to fly, but they flew anyway. And most of the people on the crew there actually lost their lives. Promising talent actually lost their lives. He shattered the man. He, he said he was done with football. But a few years after that, his wonderful wife actually persuaded him to actually rebuild things. And so he went back into United. He started rebuilding a team, not as good as the ones that were there before, but three particular names stood out. Uh, they called them the Holy Trinity. Devastating attack. George Best, Dennis Law, Bobby Chumpton. And in 1968, finally, they got a shot at winning the trophy again. They played Benfica in the final. They won 4-1. Now, I say all that just to tell you what Matt Busby said at the end when he saw Bobby Chumpton lift the cup. He said, when Bobby lifted the cup, I felt cleansed. It was my justification. 
because he was wondering why should I take this team again based on what had happened before. Now he had the justification by winning the European Cup to say this was the right thing to do. He had met his performance record and now he felt justified. And so this is how we see it. We have a performance record that all leads to a desired status. But there are two problems with this. One is what we see with the Jews and Gentiles before we get to this passage. From chapter 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20, there is a universal, but Paul has spent time to see, to show that if both the Israelites and Gentiles, that people who are not Israelites, all stood under condemnation. In other words, the law that was given to Israel to use as a regulation of the worship between them and God, was now being used as a performance record. They used it as an objective standard. And Paul was saying, if you use it as an objective standard to actually get your desired status, which we can call righteousness, he said, you will be condemned. And we feel that, don't we? In fact, the Gentiles, he said, well, you don't have the law, but you have the law written on your heart, you're still condemned by it. Many times we set up standards for ourselves. What eventually happens, we fail to you disappoint people, but actually the most disappointed person is yourself. Now, that's condemnation. The second one is boasting. You may be a deluded person here, or you may have a very, very low standard. What if you make that standard? What if actually you don't violate it? You actually meet up with it, or you perceive to yourself that you would actually, you actually met up with that standard. What that, does that lead to? Verse 27, you start to boast. Now, think about it in our society. More and more increasingly in Lagos, right? Going the way of the West, not always bad. But is that we try to judge ourselves by certain standards. Some of it could be what is your body mass, your weight. Or some of it could be beauty. What is the sense of beauty, right? How much lipstick should you use? What kind of lipstick should you use? What kind of eyeshadow, foundation? You know what I'm talking about, right? If the moment you actually use it, they say, no, that one is not Mary Kay. Mary Kay, right? That's one of them. And if you don't use, if you use Mary Kay, you should be using Max Factor. All these different things. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, it, it's size 8. No, it's not size 8. It's not size 8. It's too thin. But actually, if we get it size 10, we all have these standards through which we judge ourselves. And now, if you're the kind of person that meets up with that standard, what happens? You look down on people who actually don't meet that standard. So guess what? I've been married, and I've stayed in my marriage, and I see that divorcee over there. Oh, she couldn't do well to keep her marriage. Or, thank God, man, I'm pure. I'm really pure. I kept myself in marriage. Look at that prostitute there, just giving herself over. You see, if we judge ourselves by our own standard, and we do need to obtain this particular status, what happens? We either, if we fail, I fail from them, or if we actually meet up with it, what happens? We are being puffed up. And so we ask ourselves, what are we going to do? This system and the whole world system of judging and giving us status says one thing. Our performance eventually leads to our status. Performance precedes status. But as we've seen, performance preceding status will always lead either to being puffed up or condemnation. What do we do to get out of this? Well, we could change the system. And that's what this passage offers us here. It's saying you don't have to keep going with this way that says if you meet the performance record and you get the status, there is another way, and this is what we're calling justification by faith. 
On the other hand, we are trying to earn it. Another way the Christianism that is by what? On this one, we are trying to say, well, we do something else that doesn't make us earn it, but yet we do get this status at the same time. So the consequence of the law, of misusing the law, the Israelites um, showed, was that if they looked well, because the law was condemning them and the law itself was wholly given by God, if they looked well, the fact that they could not meet the law for righteousness was a pointer to the fact that the law was never meant to be used for righteousness. Or at the same time, your consciences that keep condemning you or keep puffing you up is actually a, sub, a subversive way to say that you actually have to go out of your conscience to get the desired result that you are looking for. 1 John 3.20 says this, if our hearts condemn us, God himself is greater than our hearts. So these are pointing to justification by faith, as we see in verse 21 and verse 28. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known, to which, it's not in the law, but to which the law and the prophets themselves lay witness to. And you see that in verse 28. So if the worldly systems are saying that performance precedes the status, this new way is saying actually the status precedes the performance. And this justification is free because you don't earn it. Now you ask yourself, free? As we see in verse 24, free? Really? How can it be free? Now something is free on two accounts. The first account is, I moved recently, I've been saying that many times, it seems to come up in all my illustrations, but I moved recently. And let's say when I was moving, I didn't want to bring in a lot of clutter into my house. There was a nice table there, it has sentimental value, but it's not going to fit well in the new house. So what has just happened now, that table is no longer valuable to me. Things are given out for free when, really, they are not valuable to us. That's one way we can give something out for free. Now, another way we can give something out for free is if that thing is so invaluable that no one will be able to work for it to actually obtain it, it has to be given for free. I'll say that again. Another way we give something for free is when something is so valuable, it is impossible to actually earn or to work for it to actually pay for it. Now, don't listen to me on that one. There are two people I can quote for you, very wise, extremely gifted, and have a huge knowledge on this. One of them, or the two of them, would be Janet Jackson and Luther Vandross. They said, the best things in life are... <laughs> I thought some people would say amen to that, right? And <laughs> singing it. Some people are singing it here. No, we're in church. We don't do that. All right. Why is, because why is prostitution so odious? Why is it so odious? It's not first and foremost because our society says that prostitution is a terrible thing. I'm not talking about whether or not we recognize it's a bad thing. I'm saying why is, why is it viscerally, at a visceral level, so odious? Very simple. Because what is invaluable has been cheapened by subjecting it to a mere transaction. What is that that is valuable? A woman's body, the sexuality of a woman's body, it should not have a price. Even if it's a million dollars, yeah, I'm speaking to those who have watched in this episode. Okay, all right, sorry. This is, you would have laughed, you probably didn't catch that. All right, that was when a man offered a woman one million dollars to actually sleep with her. Even with a million dollars. Why? Because your body is worth more than a million dollars. So we've taken something that is actually of infinite worth, 
in some sense, and cheapening it by turning it into a mere transaction. What should be obtained by free love giving has now been turned into something that we can actually transact with. And so it is the same thing. If sinners who have been condemned by God, who have fallen short of their glory, but even much more His glory, and people who are so puffed up that they cannot see if they are ever going to get this status that puts them in right standing with God, it can only be given freely by grace. Like I hear some of us who probably are not believers who say that, well, that is legal fiction. I mean, how is that possible? If somebody has done the crime, he should do what? The time. That would be justice. So fine, maybe your God actually is so loving, but actually what I can tell you is, your God is not very just. Now you see, Paul actually anticipates that, that, that charge. In fact, in verse 26, he says, God in doing this is not only just loving but and gracious, but God in doing this is actually just. Why can't Paul say that? Well, that's why we have the next two points. Because we have to understand, if you're a Christian, you need to have confidence in what you believe. And if you're not a Christian, I hope you will be persuaded. And so we go to the second point, the nature of faith. Like I said, you can see faith occurring 22, verse 22, verse 25, verse 26, verse 28. Faith is a buzzword among us. Right? You're not feeling too well. Have faith. I went to look at, um, uh, uh, I wanted to buy a house. I have 5 million in my account. The house is um, 195 million. I don't think I can buy it. Ah, ah, have faith. Just believe. And whatever you have, you shall receive. Now, there are some unmissing, and caricatured, unfortunately, sorry. But to many, to many, actually, this is true. So let me give you two, two ways that I think misunderstand biblical faith, at least. Right? I'll give you two songs that actually capture that. So the first one is I believe I can fly. <laughs> Right? Now, the person that sang that song, I can tell you for his fact, has not actually attempted to fly. Right? On the edge of a cliff. But this view of faith basically says if you intensely believe something that does not exist, you have the power just by that belief to actually create it. I'll say that again. If you intensely believe something that doesn't exist and you want, just by focusing on and imagining and revisioning that thing, you actually have the power to recreate it. This is different by than motivating someone who hasn't actually existed, um, um, coming to a place of having something, right? If somebody hasn't come to a place of having something, I can look at the person's gifts, I can inspire the person, I can give the person a book to read, I can teach the person, so that we move the person. I'll say, look, visualize this thing and actually work hard to it. So we move the person toward the place where they can achieve it. That is different from saying, you don't have something, all you need to do is just focus and focus and focus on it, and you receive it somewhere in the spiritual realm, and then you can now bring it down to the, to the natural realm. That's one misunderstanding of faith. Another misunderstanding of faith, this is largely what um, atheistic scientific people would say, is this, from Lighthouse Family's song, Question of Faith. How can you prove what you cannot see when it's a question of faith? Science says this, yes, but you know science is based on evidence. You don't have, why are you trying to prove what I believe? It's not about proving, it is a matter of faith. 
It doesn't matter whether this thing is flies in the face of any kind of evidence. We believe it because faith and science don't actually work in the same arena. Now, that's true in some sense. But both of them are in the truth business. And truth itself does not contradict the other. So, for instance, as Christians, when Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself. Paul is not saying that we are walking by something that is contradictory and that is wrong. No. Faith is always based on truth. Science itself is based on truth. But not every truth is a fact. You see what I'm saying? Not every truth can be quantified in the factual... In other words, not every truth can be quantified in a measuring tube. Right? So, is Chuck and Shogun wearing a white shirt? Yes. All right? Is, are there maybe 48 chairs here? We count it to say yes. But then, if I say, does Chuck and Shogun love his wife? I say yes. How can I prove it? You can't prove it in a test tube, can you? It doesn't make it less true. Because we can see demonstrable acts through which he has shown that he loves his wife. So, faith and science actually need not be people who are actually fighting each other. So those are two misunderstandings. But there's a way that Christianity has often understood faith to be, how the nature of faith, and I have to rush through that, all right? There are three things that are mostly important in this. One is the data, the other is understanding, and the final thing is trust. Data, understanding, and trust. So data, something is put before you. Do you understand it? So for instance, if you listen, I was reading an article by Dan Gauthier, this man, I don't know whether an article, but an interview by Dan Gauthier, and it's something I've seen in Warren Buffett. What they say most of the most successful investors do, they don't invest in things that they don't understand. Because investment is a sign of faith. They say, I need to understand this thing before I invest. That's the first thing, you have the data and you have the understanding. But it's possible to have the data and understanding and still not have faith. Why? In James, we are told, the book of James, we are told that Demons, and don't forget when Jesus was around on the earth, demons actually knew who Jesus was. More than the disciples that were following him. But the demons, though they had the data right in front of them, Jesus Christ, and they understood who he was, they did not put their trust in him. That's the final aspect of it. Let me describe that final aspect of it with this example of trust, the final part. I have an aunt, she's quite late now, and um, she had a fear of flying, like some of you here. You know, you go into a plane, you know how it is, you say your prayers, and then you behave as though you're going to read an article, and then the turbulence starts, and you're still on the same line, and turbulence starts, and then you start praying. For those of you that speak in tongues, you do it a little bit. And then, let's say it was a Delta plane from Nigeria, from, uh, from Atlanta to Lagos, and there are many more Nigerians there, and you're all uncomfortable, and eventually you land in Lagos, what happens? Clap. Oh, praise the Lord! Well, my aunt was one of them. She was terrified of flying. In fact, she never flown until Tosa and I were going to do an introduction in Abuja, so she was flying from Lagos to uh, Abuja. And throughout that plane, uh, that, uh, you know, it had, it had turbulence, it was actually quite turbulent. And apparently, any time um, the plane actually jumped up or bumped, she would say, Ah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So that's my answer. I want to contrast that with someone else. A few years ago, but well, not a few years ago, maybe a few decades ago, um, an uncle of mine flew on the same plane with a man called Professor um, 
Olikoe, grandson Kuti. You know that, that person? That's the first born, well, the first uh, fellow's elder, eldest brother. He was an accomplished man in the field of health and United Nations. And they said that plane, this man that, that was on the plane with him, said that plane, the turbulence in that plane was so much that things were falling all around and everything. And he said throughout that time, this man, Professor Likoe Ransokuti, was looking, reading his newspaper and did not budge. Now I want to ask you a question. Take my aunt and take Professor, uh, Professor Ransokuti. Which one of them had faith in the pilot and in the plane? Likoe Ransokuti. Anybody else? Well, the answer is both of them. Because we're not talking about the quantity of the faith, we are talking about the vitality of the faith. How do I know that both of them had? Very simple. They caught on the plane. Now, my aunt was a bit scared, she was a bit perturbed, but at the end of the day, she stepped on the plane. Faith is not so much about, or the faith that says, is not so much about the quantity of the measure or even the quality of it. It is whether or not it leads to action and is demonstrated. This is why somebody can say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And Beyonce said, well, if you love me, just put a ring on it. I think I'm on the road with this uh, <laughs> illustration today. Right? I better just stop. I better just stop. Some people are saying, I invited somebody over here now. He's thinking, what kind of church is it? All right, just that's the end, that's the end. But, but James, in the book of James, he says, if you show me your faith, I will show you my work. Because I cannot, there is not, we cannot prove, put faith inside a test tube. You can't see it. You can only see the obedience or the action that spring out from faith, if you trust. So we demonstrate faith by actually getting married. Not by planning for our wedding, and planning for our wedding, and dreaming about our wedding. When you do say, I do, then you actually show Demonstrate faith by paying for an unused good. No matter how much you suspect, ah, this guy's an evil chap. I wonder whether this thing is China, blah, blah. Did you pay for it? Yes, you did. You have faith in that person. It may not be great faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And so faith is not creating what does not exist, nor is it acting on the irrational, but resting upon what we see, understand, and trust. And therefore, we must ask, Faith in what exactly? The final point. The object of faith. You see, for faith to be efficacious, you need to have the right knowledge of the right object. I'll say that again. For faith to be efficacious, you need to have the right knowledge of the right object. Now, in a previous example, let me give, let me give this. Imagine there was a chair here. Well, I told someone to bring a chair from me. Let me, okay, let me get this chair. This chair. Fantastic job. Let's use this. In the previous example, then someone that doesn't have faith has the data, the chair is the data, and he has the understanding. He looks at it, oh, this is a chair. It's a very good chair. It has four legs. It's actually made of iron. It has a good backrest, blah, 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 blah. I give him the chair. He says, ah, and even the way the, the sculptor actually put it together, this, you see the way this thing is measured, the iron here is, is supported to sit on the chair. And he keeps describing, sit on the chair. doesn't sit on the chair. What does that doesn't That's pretentious. He can describe everything, sit on the chair, he's not. But there are two other kinds of things I want us to think about when we think about this object of faith. You can have misplaced faith or ignorant faith. What would be misplaced faith? Because it's actually faith. What would be misplaced faith? Misplaced faith would be 
Somebody comes in, he thinks he's going to sit on the chair. And when he comes, he sits on the chair. But actually, he eventually finds out that it's a two-legged chair. And so what happens? When he sits down, he falls down. Did the man have faith? Yes. What was the problem? The object of his faith could not stand his expectation. It was misplaced. Another one is ignorant faith. It is if the person came in, he didn't sit down, but he actually decided to stand on it. What's the problem there? The problem there is not that he didn't, it wasn't a chair. The problem is that his perception of what the chair was and what he was actually doing was actually different from what the chair was designed for. So let me treat a little bit about this right object in the context of our thinking. You see, get this straight, especially if you are reading Paul, right? Many of the letters that Paul um, has. Quite often what we do in our Christianity is that we take a particular word, we don't read the context, understand the biblical context, not just, I'm not, when I say context, I'm not just saying read a couple of verses or just read the chapter. Sometimes read the whole book. So we take a particular word, we infuse it not with the Bible's meaning, but with meanings that are circulating in our culture. So quite often we see the word faith in the Bible and not know, we infuse it with some of those other meanings I say, and not know that faith is just a shorthand for Paul saying faith in Christ. He just cannot keep saying faith in Christ over and over and over again for letters that he has many words. So he's used faith in Christ before. He has assumed that you know that he's talking about faith. So faith always has an object because if you just take faith on itself, you're wondering, okay, we can have this scary kind of faith. No, faith always has an object. And when it comes to being justified before God, when it comes to receiving a new status whereby the status is given to you before you actually perform, it is faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He is that righteousness God had made known apart from them. And Romans 10 verse 2 and 3, just again saying, for people who didn't have the right knowledge, listen to what Paul says. The same book, he's taking the same thing, he's expanding on it further. He said in verse 2, for I can testify, or let me start with this. Brothers and sisters, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not what? Based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. What did they do? They thought the law was there to mark them off as special people. Special people they were, but they thought they were special people because of their performance. And so they used the law as a way to justify themselves. And God is saying, that's their own righteousness. And so you may be a Christian here as well, and you think you are doing very, very well, you are very, very moral, you actually, you know, know the Ten Commandments by heart, you have all your devotions, you actually have not smoked before, you've never, well, you probably were a virgin before you got married, and therefore, God of course owes me something. That's a misuse of God's own standards. And so when we come to Jesus Christ, we are actually receiving God's own gift. God has condemned all people. And he's saying, even though at one time I divided people by those who had my law and those who do not have. If all people are condemned, and therefore if I'm going to bring a way of salvation, if I'm going to give a way whereby I can give people a desired status, it has to be a way that cuts across all boundaries. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Because all have sin. 
and therefore all can receive justification through Christ. Why not receive this all-inclusive righteousness? So as Christians, and this is a passion for me, this is why when we had our values, we didn't start with love God, we started with love Jesus. We could have said love God. But there is a lot of God talk, especially in Nigeria, because we are largely a population mixed with Christians, Muslims, and people of uh, the traditional religions. But most of these religions are monotheistic. We all believe in one supreme God. And so for the sake of peace, for the sake of getting along one another, we start to use this all-inclusive God language that almost starts to say that we all worship the same God, which is not true. If you're a true Muslim, you cannot believe that. And so rather than, than God talk, it's fine, I think we should speak more about Jesus talk. Amen? Amen. So the right object for our justification for getting the desired uh, status is Jesus Christ. But even that is not that quite sufficient. It can't be inadequate. There is also inadequate Jesus talk. Let me give you a few of them. You're not saved here. Can you ask Jesus into your heart? Now, if somebody asks Jesus into their heart, they could be saved, but then again, it depends. What are you asking Jesus in your heart to do? To come and make your heart a fantastic, comfortable place? Behold, I stand as though I'm not. If any man hear my voice, well, first of all, that text is not talking about salvation. Is asking Jesus in your heart the equivalent of being saved? I don't think that's the way the Bible presents it. There's another one, WWGD. What would Jesus do? In other words, look, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. How do I believe in Jesus Christ? I follow the way of Jesus Christ. What is that? The um, Sermon on the Mount, for instance. I only read the lead letters in the Bible. I just behave as Jesus behaved. Well, if that was the case, Mahatma Gandhi would agree with you, and I don't think he was a Christian. He said the problem he has with Christianity is the Christians, not their Christ. Jesus Christ for him was the ultimate guru, the perfect teacher. Or you can be like a Muslim that says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's a prophet. I believe he was born by a virgin. And I believe he's coming back again. And yet, we say that we are Muslims don't believe the In other words, the specificity of who Jesus Christ is matters. And Paul gets to that. It's not just the object of our faith, but we can have insufficient knowledge of the object of our faith. Verse 25. God presented Christ, or let's go to verse 24. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. But what is this redemption? Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That, he says, is what is to be received by faith. Now let me give one big word there. Christ's death for us is what the Bible calls, or in the ESV version, the sacrifice of atonement, propitiation. What is propitiation? It is the act that actually makes someone propitious. In other words, is this. If I offend Yobo, if I offend Yobo, if I do something grievous to Yobo, there are two ways we can work it out. One way we cannot work it out is to behave as though nothing ever happened. And sometimes some of us are like that, isn't it? You actually offend somebody. You know you offend somebody. You offended the person. 
And the Lord said, Ah, did you watch that match yesterday? It was fantastic. You can't scare to vibe. Right? Or let's go out. Let's go out and have lunch. Right? You suppose always you won't do it. You. Ah, you can't even take a joke again. You try to scare to vibe as though it never happened. That's a terrible way to actually address conflict. Now, there's one way, there are two, two ways you can work it out. Yoko can be so angry, so angry, that every time he sees me, he makes sure I pay for it. Yoko, he looks away. Yoko, are you going to come? Um, I'm trying to invite him. I'm having a party. Are you going to come? No, he doesn't. He speaks to everyone, tells them exactly what I did. He starts to actually cut certain relationships I have because of that thing I did. In other words, Yoko is making me pay for it. The consequences, I'm, I'm actually reaping the consequences of my action towards you, so that's one way you pay. But there's another way you can actually let go, you can actually forgive. Now, in the Muslim version of forgiveness, Allah can forgive. Why? Because Allah is Allah. Right? He can decide to forgive, He can decide not to forgive. But why? On how does he do it? There's no mechanics to it. It's Allah, right? He says, it's gone. It's gone. In the Christian way, it's not that quite simple. And it's actually very, very similar to this example I'm giving. If somebody went to meet Yobo and say, Yobo, what's wrong with you now? Are you not a Christian? Forgive me. Just like that. Yobo say, well, you don't understand what he did to me. I can't just let go. If you just let go, what happens to justice? And then the Christian faith says, we have to uphold justice. Every offense must be paid for. Especially the offense where we've committed treason against this God. But at the same time, we're saying that this God has let us go in Christ. How does it happen? And this is where the brilliance of the cross comes from. This is something we must never, ever, ever forget. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He was made for sin who knew no sin that we may become the righteousness of God in him. That is what happens here. Jesus Christ eventually becomes the condemnation for all the standards that you and I could not meet, especially God's standards, and he takes our punishment so that he can give us his own righteousness. He makes God propitious. The anger of God has been averted so that God can now be favorable towards us. Because you see, if Yobu forgives me, Somebody is paying. It's not me, it's Yobo that is paying it. Have you ever forgiven anyone? Forgiven anyone that has deeply hurt you. What eventually happens when you are forgiven the person? Most of you will say this, you are crying. Why were you crying? Because even though you are showing the person love, you decided to take the pain upon yourself. Someone always has to pay. Either the offender or the offended. And now we have committed a treasonable act against God. God says, Yes, you are so far out there, but I will take the pain to actually set you free. And that's why God came as a man and actually took our offenses on the cross so that you and I can now receive a new status, not based on our own performance or our own performance record, but based on the performance of another. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. I felt very Pentecostal there. <laughs> if we try to receive our status by our own way, we are either condemned or we are born. But now we can walk in humble freedom. Freedom because we know we are not condemned. But humble freedom because we know that we did not earn it. A Christian who knows they are forgiven is always the most humble person. He doesn't tell you, do you know who I am? 
Because actually he knows who he is. He should have been the one that was receiving it. Oh God, in his mercy, set me free. Now I want to challenge you. If you're not a Christian, are you not tired of not being able to meet your standard, your wife's standard, your boss's standard, your culture standards? Why not receive a new status that tells you you are so loved and you are so accepted? All the Bible is asking and what God is saying is don't pretend like you didn't meet those standards. Do you think you are bad? Well, I have news for you. You are worse than you ever think you are. That's what the Bible says. But do you think therefore you are rejected? No, you are more loved than you ever dared imagine. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. If you receive that and rest upon Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, you have a new status. And what if you're the kind of person who, whether you walk down an aisle or whether you said the prayer before, and you know in your heart that deeply you're a Christian, you've heard this before, but the problem here is that you don't walk in the same way that shows this your status. Remember, it's not just that your, your, we said that in the previous systems, the performance precedes the status. Now, you have a new status, what should you do? You work in a new way of performing. Not performing to earn your righteousness, but performing because you are grateful for the status that you've now been given. Have you been forgiven? Why not forgive? Have you been given to? Why not also give? Freely have we received, freely do we give. And that's the challenge before all of us here. Receive this gospel status through Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of righteousness that comes through Christ alone and what He's done for us on the cross. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who is still resting in you, or anyone who actually believes that they have always been Christians, but now, under the voice of your word, they are contemplating and trying to see. Maybe I haven't been. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you walk on those persons' heart and bring them to the foot of the cross. And for those of us, Lord, who have not worked in consistency, have not been humble, we have to look down on others. We feel a sense of entitlement. We get our own status from our next, our new promotion, our bank account, or the lack of the bank account, or the lack of promotion. We ask the Lord that you have mercy upon us. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus. Love people, love Lagos.